Well, good morning again, everyone. Welcome to In-Town Church. If you are just coming in or have come in since Steve welcomed you the first time, we're glad that you're here. And if you're new, we're going through a series uh, studying First Peter. We're calling it Everyday Christianity. What does it mean to live out faithfully uh, in our current world, in our current climate? What does it mean to uh, be allegiant to Christ in our city and in our homes and our schools? So this morning, we're going to be looking at everyday holiness. What does it mean to live a holy life? So would you pray with me as we get started? Father, as we take this time now to reflect upon this ancient word, let us not look just for more information, insights for living, moral instruction alone, but let us look, let us lean into this text to be met by you, to meet the incarnate God, to meet the one who stoops and condescends to even use our language, to use our idioms, to use the way that we speak and listen and learn in order that we may comprehend you. We believe that this text is, is ancient, and it does have a human imprint on it, but we believe also just as firmly that it is your word, that it is a gift to us, that it is a way in which we can find true life, And so, Father, let us do that. Wherever we're coming from this morning, let us find our answers in Jesus. And let us strive to be holy, to reflect who you are. Lord, would you empower us in that way this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you or if you're like me, but when I am flipping channels at night, if I don't have something particularly particular to watch, I'll often find myself watching these home renovation TV shows or, uh, you know, the shows where they come in and they, they buy a house and they flip it and they sell it for like twice as much and they put very, what it seems like, little amount of effort into it. There's flip it forward, there's flipping the block, there's flip men, there's flip this house, there's flip that house. All these people are flipping houses and making a lot of money and I guess maybe that's why I'm intrigued by it because I know that when I do it, it's hard, but they make it look easy, and they're making a lot of money. We're watching people. I'm watching these people that are doing actually really hard work while I'm sitting on the couch relaxing, while I'm avoiding doing the things that they're doing in this show that I probably should be doing in my own house. But there's, but there's certainly this appeal of sort of fast, easy money, of being able to do these projects and make your home beautiful and do it really quickly and inexpensively. There's also, I think, another part of these shows that draws me in, and maybe you too, because it's a story of redemption. It's a story of taking a house and reclaiming its beauty. It's about things being restored to their proper use, about being made beautiful again. And what these people do, these designers come in and they're able to see in the before stage of this house the intrinsic beauty that's embedded in this structure that they just have to bring it out. And they put in some effort and then they stand at the curb and at the end of the show they admire the work that they've done because this house has become beautiful again. The good news of the gospel, the good news of what we're looking at in this letter that Peter writes is that We can be like that house, that we can be reclaimed, we can be restored, 
that God wants to bring about a beautiful redemption in your life, that He wants to restore your original beauty. We see that this is what holiness is. It's being redeemed. It's being restored to your original beauty. We see in verse 18 this idea of redemption, that those who are reading this letter have been redeemed. They've been ransomed. They've been bought back by grace. And in the New Testament, this word for redemption was a word used in reference to manumission of slaves. That is, slaves being set free by themselves paying off their debt or someone in their family, perhaps, paying off their debt. And this was done, generally speaking, through a price being paid through a temple god or goddess that the priest, the temple priest, would take up this money and they would take it then to the slave owner and say, now this slave is now free. Now, what Peter does is that he turns this on its head because the slave was considered redeemed by the god or goddess, but it wasn't the god or goddess that was paying the price. It was the slave. They had saved up over time to buy themselves out of debt, or perhaps the slave's family is helping them in that. But Peter takes this well-known practice and he stands it on its head because to his Christian readers, he's saying they've been liberated not by their own effort or by their own payment, but God himself has paid their debt. God himself has bought them out of slavery and has redeemed them. He's ransomed them. And Peter says, Jesus, this resurrected Son of God, laid down his life in exchange for you, that you were in bondage to sin, that you were in bondage even to yourself in ways that you didn't know, and that Jesus says, my life for yours. And he lays down his life, and he gives it for free, and he ransoms you out of bondage, out of slavery. And so in verse 19, he says that your slavery is ended with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. You have to pay your own manumission in the ancient world. And this would have been completely expected. You don't get out of debt for nothing. You have to pay it off. You have to work off your debt. And then you're enslaved to this deity, to this god or goddess that has redeemed you, though they haven't done anything for it. But with Jesus, you were bought at his cost, the cost of his very blood. And that's why Peter can go on to say, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God, that is Jesus himself. For all people, you and I, are like grass. And all of their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. What are you saying? That God's word stands forever. And so what has been done for you is irrevocable. What he says about you is eternal. It's imperishable. And so as we talked last week, it is upon this imperishable grace that Peter invites his readers to stake their hope in, their hope for the future, their hope for life, their hope for prosperity is set upon this imperishable grace. You see, hope in the Bible is not just a wish about the future. It's not just, I really wish or I really hope 
that it doesn't rain tomorrow. I really hope that I get this promotion at work. I really hope that I find the person of my dreams. As Peter uses it, it is a living assurance that what is hoped for will certainly come to pass. And this sort of assurance is possible when the hope is upon the unchanging reality and the work of God himself, the imperishable nature of his word. People like you and I are like grass. Our aspirations are like the flowers of the the field. Our lives are fleeting. They're mortal. They can come to an end at any moment, no matter how we strive, no matter how we live, no matter how hard we push against this idea of death. Our lives are mortal, and they can end at any moment. Our, our lives are like the seed that perishes. And our aspirations are what we strive for. Those things tend to come to an end as well. They're vulnerable. And so when we place our hope and confidence in those things that our society trains us to do, our status, our education, our consumption, we put ourselves underneath the rule of a very fickle, a very vulnerable deity, a very weak deity. And that's exactly what that is. It's a deity. It's a God in our lives, or at least it can be. Our work, our status, if that's what we're putting our hope in, then ultimately those things are becoming gods unto us. But they're weak and they're fickle. And what Peter is doing is he's trying to retrain our imaginations to understand ourselves not in terms of how we feel about ourselves, not in terms about, of what other people feel about us or ch- how other people treat us, but he's retraining our minds and our imaginations to fix our hope upon how God feels about us and how God treats us and upon his imperishable, work, imperishable word and the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus. Instead of all of these ways that we pursue our hope, that we pursue immortality, that we try to forestall the inevitable end of our lives, set your hope instead on the objective reality of God's grace depicted in the reality of Jesus' resurrection. So we see, first of all, that we're ransomed We're made holy by ransom. But we need to see also that there's a progressive element to this, that we're becoming holy by grace. So with that in mind, let's circle back then around to closer to the beginning. Verse 15, but just as he who called you is holy, that is, just as God is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Now, maybe we sort of chafe at this idea of holiness. It seems kind of threatening. It seems kind of intimidating. Maybe it's, we chafe at it because it seems so religious. People who think of themselves as holy, as set apart, generally become intolerant people and ultimately intolerable people. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're a Christian and you're just, you're just tired of trying to be holy. You're tired of everyone sharing with you what holiness looks like. You're tired of trying to measure up and follow the rules, and it's beaten you down, and you're tired. Well, the good thing is that both of these ideas about what holiness is are wrong. Holiness, if it's authentic, 
goes all the way down and it strips away our pride. Because holiness is becoming Christ-like, it makes us humble. It makes us generous. It makes us tender towards those around us. It makes us inquisitive rather than condemning about the way that other people live their lives and think about who God is. Growing in holiness means that you're actually becoming more winsome and more attractive and more loving and very much less holier than thou. And for those of us who are tired, for those of us who are ready to throw in the the white towel because we're just done with trying to measure up, holiness is not this linear self-improvement project by which we try to earn our standing before God, by which we make ourselves acceptable. Yes, there is this progressive element. There's a change process of becoming more like Jesus. But it's not, holiness is not, trying real hard to obey the rules. It's actually becoming comfortable with grace. It's seeing this vast chasm between God's holiness and ours and seeing that he is unimaginably holy and yet we see ourselves as falling far short of that. And instead of running and hiding in the corner, we run and we throw our concerns, we throw our sin upon Jesus who willingly takes it And so holiness is becoming comfortable with grace. It's not striving hard to follow the rules. We need to see, first of all, in this, we we need to see the holiness of God. Because if we're asking, what is holiness? We need to see, how does God embody holiness? Well, holiness means to be separate. The Hebrew word actually means to be cut It is to cut loose. It is to set apart, to be consecrated as pure. And God is infinitely and transcendentally, wait, we're not on Walden Pond here, transcendently holy. His qualities aren't just sort of at the very top of the scale. They're off the scale. He is the measurement by which we define holiness. And so at some level, even in the biblical writers, their language wrestles with how do, we, how do we portray, how do we communicate how holy God is. And we see the prophet Isaiah given this vision of being in the throne room of God. And we sung about it earlier. The cherubim and the seraphim who have to guard themselves before God because his, holy is, his holiness is so blinding. And Isaiah comes in and says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And seeing God's transcendent holiness, his holy otherness, he says, woe unto me. The prophets were called oftentimes to say, woe unto Israel if you do not change. These were holy men. They were set apart. They were consecrated by God to come and say to Israel, return to the Lord and woe unto you if you don't. But here when he sees God, it makes him humble. Instead of looking at Israel and what they've done wrong, he says, look at me, woe unto me. Do you see God's holiness? Instead of setting you up to be holier than thou, it actually crumbles your pride and makes you tender. It makes you humble if you really see how holy God is. 
he's also uniquely holy. In 1 Samuel 2, it says there's none holy like the Lord. And then in Exodus 15, who is like you? Rhetorically meaning nobody, nobody is holy like you, Lord. Holiness means to be set apart, to be unique. And this confession, there's nobody like you, Lord, that's the confession of a Christian. That's the confession of the one who has actually received Jesus and has been set apart themselves as holy. You see, in, in becoming a Christian, you are separating God as holy, as uniquely holy, as trans, transcendently holy. You saw him as above everything else. He's not another book to pull off your shelf to consult. He's not just another enrichment program. He's not another spiritual option. Considering God as holy means you've ditched every other priority, every other option, that he's separate, he's unique, he's transcendent. And that's the confession of a Christian. That's the confession that Peter is saying that his readers have made, that God is holy other, there's nobody like him. And we are staking our lives upon that fact. And then what happens? He, in turn, sets you apart. He makes you holy by grace. Now, ours, of course, is, is very different. It's not this transcendent holiness, but it's nevertheless true that you are made to be holy, that you are sanctified, that there's an action by which God sets you apart and makes you. He deems you to be holy. In the Bible, lots of earthly things are made holy. The ground is made holy. As Moses goes to the burning bush and he sees this bush that's not consumed by the flame, he's told Moses, take your sandals off because the ground that you're standing on is holy ground. Because God is present, it's holy. Priests are made holy in Leviticus. Pots are made holy in Zechariah. The tithe is made holy because it's consecrated. It's laid aside for God. And why were these things holy? Why were they considered? It's because they were completely put at God's disposal. Therefore, his exclusive use, to be holy, meant to be wholly devoted, meant to be wholly separated for God's use. And so the holiness that Peter is talking about isn't this linear self-improvement project. It's not well, how well you follow the rules, but it's about being set apart once and for all, being made holy. And Jesus comes. He embodies this holiness. He is the very image of God. And we see in the Old Testament, Isaiah encountering the holiness of God. Woe unto me. But with Jesus, you don't run away from Jesus. You don't cower in the corner. You're drawn to him. He embodies absolute perfection, absolute holiness, and yet he draws people in. Instead of people saying, woe unto me, they say, wow, I want to be like that. I want to know that person. Jesus is trans transcendently, I keep messing that word up. He is unbelievably holy, <laughs> impenetrably holy, extraordinary, I'll use those. And yet, he draws people in. Yet you don't find yourself running away from him and cowering in fear. You find him 
opening up his arms and saying, come and be embraced by me. Be welcomed into God's presence by me. But notice that Peter is not writing to you only as an individual. He's writing to you as a community. This you in verse 13 is plural. It's you all or y'all. Y'all are set apart. You all are made holy. You are a kingdom of priests. You are a holy nation. And God has set apart you as a church as holy. And a community here is being set apart for God's use in much the same way that Israel was set apart for God's exclusive use, for a very holy mission. In Exodus, God tells the Israelites, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And of course, there are rules that go along with this. There are house rules. And you have house rules in your family. You have house rules with your roommates. All of us have house rules, and they identify how we are to live. This is who we're going to be. This is how we're going to embody the values and the type of people, the type of family we want to be the type of living situation we want to be. These are our house rules. And in our house, all of us want to abide by the house rules. It's not just Katie and I establishing the house rules and expecting our children to abide by them. We also live underneath the house rules. And the house rules are designed to be protective. They're designed to protect us, protect our children, but they're also demonstrative. They're meant to reflect our allegiance to Jesus. They're meant to embody the gospel. And so therefore, if there's cause for correction, it's not a a wagging the finger type of correction. And it's not because necessarily someone has broken the house rules. The The communication, the conversation is more like, you know what? We're in this together. We're a family, and these are our values, and this is who we are, and you've been set apart as belonging to this family and to God. And we want us all, and we want you to live out of that reality because we, f- we believe that that's the, the way to joy. That's the way to true wholeness and true life. And so what God is doing as he gives us these rules to follow is he's, he's basically setting the house rules. He's saying you belong already and now live. Now these rules are to be demonstrative of this already prior existence that you have in relationship with me. Following the rules does not make you a member of the family. You follow the rules because you are a part of the family. He wants to set these house rules to create a community that embodies his character and reminds people of who they are, that gives them a community by which they can flourish, by which they can experience God's grace. And so we saw, first of all, that you're holy by ransom. And then secondly, that you're becoming holy by grace. But then finally and quickly, that you're made holy for a purpose. You're made holy for a purpose. That if you're a Christian, if you're a member of Christ's body, that you're called to be distinctive in some way. And part of this series is meant to draw out what is that distinctiveness. What is it that makes you different, makes you set apart, and yet also being able to live in two worlds, the world of the church and the world outside, and to live in a way that is winsome and attractive and yet transformative in some way? That's our our goal in this series. And so just kind of 
just setting our, our tippy toe into that, that you're made holy for a purpose. That just as Israel was made to be set apart and distinct in order for God's rule to be made known to the nation, so the church takes up that role now in the same way. Now, if you notice, Peter was quoting from Leviticus, that really threatening, scary book. Be holy because God himself is holy. But you see, the original purpose of Leviticus is, these are the house rules, guys. These, is, these are the ways in which you, I want you to live so that you will embody the grace of God. With all of its strange and demanding rules, the point wasn't the rules themselves, but that there would be one place on earth, physically speaking, where the holiness of God could be seen, could be experienced. And this was a, a, a slight reflection of what is coming in Jesus, that the holiness of God inhabits Jesus perfectly. And if you were around in the first century, you could go and you could actually see Jesus. You could be embraced by Jesus. His holiness was meant to be seen and depicted in Jesus in a way uh, by which the nations would come in. And here in Leviticus, though it seems so foreign and archaic and strange to us, the point is not the rules themselves. The point is building a community by which God's utter holiness can be seen. It's about God creating a new society which is distinctive in ways that leads other nations to stream in and find their identity in God. And so when we read Leviticus and we find it sort of odd, what the writer is saying at the bottom of all of these rules is that every area of life is affected by holiness. Every area of life is affected by encountering the true God. It's not just the religious parts of your life that are reformed, the way that you act in the temple or the way that you act in church, but it's how you eat, it's how you dress, it's how you treat others, it's how you deal with disagreements. Every part of life is affected and meant to, become un meant to be brought under the, the rules of God. Holiness, in other words, knows no boundaries. And when you're set apart to be holy. You're, you're, to be consider, you're to consider your business transactions as set apart unto God. You're to consider your marriages and relationships, your schools, your life at school, your parenting, and particularly how we live in community with one another. And therefore, he says in, in two one, verse 2.1, therefore, Rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. It's not just simply, don't do this. He is saying that these things have no place in the community of God. It's not possible for these things to exist and there to be a true community of God that understands its identity as set apart unto God. Instead, love one another deeply from the heart. Love one another because you have been loved. Love one another because they are set apart as holy. Love one another because you have been set apart as holy. This isn't just this warm, sort of fuzzy, bubbly feeling, but it's a, a relationship that refuses to stand idly by when someone is suffering. It's a relationship that refuses to hold grudges, a relationship that refuses to slander someone else. 
And we refuse this, not because if we don't, that God will get us. It's because it's not consistent with who you really are. It's not consistent with the new house that God has made you to be. You've been restored. You've been remade. You've been redeemed. And the original beauty by which God made you is now front and center. It's now coming out again. You've been remade to be beautiful again. And so now it's Jesus who stands at the sidewalk and he admires his work. He looks at the house and says, wow, this thing is beautiful again. I want to live here. I want to be a part of this. You have been remade. And so becoming holy, living holy, is not just to follow the rules. It's to live according to who you are. It's be who you are. God has made you holy, irrevocably. And now be holy. Live in holy ways. Don't live in ways that detracts from the beauty. Don't live in ways that detracts from the the fact that God has redeemed you, that you are to be holy because he was holy for you. He gave himself completely for you. The holy and the pure one died for the unholy and the impure. And when we see that, when we see that that's our story, then we can begin to strive towards holiness, not out of fear of reprisal, but because we are overcome by love. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are grateful that in Jesus Christ, your holiness is no longer a threat. Not only are we saved from our sins so that we can stand in your presence, but in Jesus we see holiness as being a beauty. He was committed to us. He saw his path. He knew what he had to do to save us. And he went down that path to his own destruction so that we can have life. Lord Jesus, you were utterly, exclusively, unconditionally holy and yet at the same time committed to us. And Lord, let us be that for you. Would you make us holy? Would you make us a holy church in this city? Make us a holy people and help us to more and more be transformed into the image of your Son in whose name we pray. Amen.